And um, those of you who are staying behind, we're continuing with 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Last week we looked at a true disciple's um, the character of a true disciple. So the first thing we looked at, I'm not going to write it out, but CH, that's character. And then we also looked at the work of a true disciple. And then we also looked at the purpose of a true disciple. And then I left it like that, and I forgot to finish my little picture. And so I finished off by saying that Christ is the source of all of this. If you go and you start by saying, what is the character of a true disciple? I want that. I'm going to stick that character onto myself. I'm going to change myself to have that character. I'm going to do the work of a true disciple, and I'm going to fulfill the purpose of a true disciple. But you did that in your, in your own strength. You did that without Christ as the source. Your heart hasn't changed. And we know that God looks on the inward. God doesn't look like man looks at man. So I just wanted to, to finish that before we continue with today. So the character the work and the purpose of a true disciple all comes from a heart that is surrendered to Jesus Christ. So how do you do that practically? Well, you don't pursue the deeds. You pursue the person, the reason for the deeds. You seek to know Christ more. You seek to know God more. And so through that, He will conform you. He will change you to become more like His Son. And so you will fulfill those deeds. Now, um, Today, we're going to be continuing with that. We finished off in verse... Let's, let's read from verse 1 again. So let's just go through that again. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother. So here's the characteristics of a true disciple. A brother, a minister of God, and a fellow laborer. The characteristics. And then it's a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. And then here's the work of a true disciple, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. And then we said ultimately the purpose is verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. So let's continue from there, that's the purpose. For yourselves know that we were appointed thereunto. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. So the first thing that I want to look at today is what did Paul give? What did Paul say to these disciples, these people who wanted to be true disciples, these people who were going through afflictions? What did Paul give them to help them in these afflictions? And the simple answer I want to say is he gave them truth. He just gave them truth. Have a look at verse 3, the second half of it. Well, let's read the whole verse. It says, For no man should be moved in these afflictions. Then he says, For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 
For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. So he told them that this affliction is something that is going to come. It's something that is not commonly spoken of um, enough, I think. It's almost like tribulation and persecution sometimes catches a Christian off guard. So Paul speaks the inconvenient truth, and that's what helped this church. He's literally saying to them, you are saved and now appointed unto glory, eternal glory, but you are also appointed unto temporal affliction. So your appointment, have a look at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll show you that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're appointed unto salvation. God wants all of us to be saved. But in chapter 3 and verse, um, verse um, 3, it also says we are appointed unto afflictions. So both these things are appointed unto a Christian. Jesus is not just the answer to all your problems. He is the path to some new ones. And that is, well, all of a sudden you now have not just this, this flesh and the sinful world you're living in, you now have an enemy, or you have now have Satan as your enemy. And so you have some new afflictions on your way. Now, why do I say that? You'll, you may say that I'll scare young believers if I tell them that. But the question I ask then is, do you think lies will do them any better? Lies won't do them any better. Not telling them the truth is not going to help a young believer. Remember, these people had Paul there for three weeks. And somewhere in those three weeks, he taught them that they are going to suffer persecution. They are going to suffer tribulation. This wasn't something that they, six months, a year into salvation, now you can start sharing with them that there's going to be tribulation. No, this is something you share with them from the beginning. You give them truth from the beginning. One writer said, If a person knows that something unpleasant is a part of his destiny, something that is inevitable, then he'll brace himself to meet it. He'll brace himself to meet it. That's why Scripture is filled with the truth surrounding these afflictions. Because we have to be able to brace ourselves. We have to make peace with the fact that that is part of the Christian life as they um, persecuted Christ, they will also persecute us. I'm going to read you a small piece from a sermon I was listening to this week. It says, All that will live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. Expect it. That's how it is. We are called to this. Peter says, After you have suffered a while, the Lord will make you perfect. James says, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, because God is using them to perfect you. Paul says, All these things that happen to you work together for good. And he says, no matter what comes against you, life, death, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, nothing is going to ultimately move you from the love of God. But the other side of it is, get ready, because it's all going to come. It's all going to come. You are destined for trouble. Jesus said, they that they that treated me this way, do you think they'll treat you any different? In this world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In other words, you are going to have temporal trouble. Look ahead to eternal glory. And so, 
where Paul goes and he says this to these young believers, essentially. He tells them the truth. Because imagine if Paul did not tell them this. Imagine if he told them that Christ came to, gave, to give you a prosperous life and that Jesus died to take all your troubles away. Imagine if he told them that. Three weeks later, Paul is being chased out of Thessalonica. They are being persecuted, imprisoned, killed for their faith. What do you think would have happened to them? Imagine if he told them that if you have Christ, then you, everything is going to work out for you. You see, they would have connected what that man, what Paul said, to the character of Christ. And so they would reject Christ because of the false promise given by the preacher. And you can't blame a young believer for doing that. They don't know better. And so that's why we need to preach the truth. You see, someone who preaches a false message can't be a disciple of Christ. The work of a disciple is to establish and to comfort the believer. We saw that in verse 2, to establish and to comfort the believer. How do you establish without truth? How do you, what do you build on? What is your foundation if it's not truth? Anything else is going to shake and shift with time. So what do you, what do you, how do you establish someone without truth? How do you comfort someone without truth? You see, something like this. You must be doing something terribly wrong or not have enough faith because you are not appointed unto the suffering. If someone tells you that, that's a lie, right? Does that comfort someone who's in that state of trouble that you are doing something wrong and that you don't have enough faith and that's why you're going through this trial? That doesn't comfort someone. See, a lie doesn't comfort. What, com- what is comforting is God is with you. He will strengthen you in this time. His grace is sufficient. And ultimately, He will make you more like His Son. God uses this. Do you see, like, the truth, even though we think in that moment saying something true, saying something that may be hard to hear, will be- benefit that person, it doesn't benefit. The truth establishes. The truth comforts. Truth is vital, and it is found ultimately in its source. Now, John fourteen six, what does it say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Jesus is the truth. And John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we know that our source is Christ and the word, and that is where we need to find truth. And that is what we need to share with people, because that's the only thing that will stand the test of time. I want to give you a few thoughts on why truth is so important in a disciple's life. Here's a few thoughts. So, how are you going to endure afflictions in a God-honoring way if you believe it's against His will for you to suffer? You can't. You need truth. How are you going to maintain fellowship with God if you think every trial and affliction is a punishment from God? You can't have fellowship with Him because it That's not true. How are you going to navigate life, all its ups and downs, questions and challenges, without a true and unfailing guide? You can't. How are people going to get saved if they believe that they are basically good and can save themselves? They need truth. Do you see the importance not just for the gospel, the importance for you and your fellowship with God, The truth. We need the truth. The truth is often inconvenient, offensive, and hence replaced with lies. Because the truth is 
you cannot, for example, justify yourself. You, that, yes, you can go to church. Yes, you can pray. Yes, you can do all these things, but it doesn't justify you. See, that's not, that's not nice to hear because what you're essentially saying that the best you can be is not good enough. And that's hard. That's not convenient. All right? So the truth is often not convenient, but it is necessary. So a true disciple must always be driven by truth. Because any form of lie or half-truth will only keep people captive. It will only re- make them return with questions. And it will only cause people to be caught off guard. It will keep you captive because it preaches something like work salvation. And so you're striving your whole life to try and attain some level of goodness to somehow justify you before God. You're captive to your works. It will return you with questions because you will ask things like, why am I afflicted? Does God even love me? Because you don't know the truth regarding afflictions. You don't know the truth regarding what he has said about them. It will cause you to be caught off guard. Kind of like, I'm sure all of you or most of you have had that experience where you're standing in the ocean and a wave just comes from the back. So you're, you wanted to look if something is happening and all of a sudden this wave just hits you from the back. And it's because you don't know the truth. It catches you off guard. So you, you see trials coming instead of prosperity, which you thought is what you were supposed to have. And even worse, you find yourself opening your eyes in hell instead of heaven. Like Jesus said in Matthew 7, Many shall say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy ni- name, and in thy na- name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them. I knew thee, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, that is, a, that is not a wake-up call you want. That is because you were not given truth. And so the truth, the truth will set people free. So the sooner we embrace truth and the liberty that there is in that, not only the liberty that comes with salvation and that truth, the sooner we'll be able to free, we will be free to know and to serve God in the way He needs to be known and served, in spirit and in truth. Alright, let's have a look at verse 5. It says, For this cause, when we could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. So, for this cause, He sends, um, for this cause He can no longer forbear, He sent to know their faith. Now, why does he send to know their faith? Why is he primarily concerned about these people in Thessalonica's faith? Well, Satan attacks the root. He attacks, because if the root rots, the tree falls. You know, excuse the analogy if it makes you cringe. But if the root rots, the tree falls, right? So, Satan attacks the root. Let me ask you a question. By what are you saved? Grace through faith. He attacks faith. Without what is it impossible to please God? Without faith. You see why he attacks faith? You can't be saved without it. You can't be or live in fellowship. You can't please God without it. So faith is foundational. What you believe determines the way you live. Not faith determines your reality. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying believe you can fly and you can fly. Okay? Faith is not the, the, the access to all these amazing 
things and abilities, you know, that should be unlocked because you're like a superhuman or something. That's not, what I'm saying is, is that faith, what you believe determines the way you live. It's essentially what James says in James chapter 2. Have a look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and um, verse 18. What you believe determines the way you live. James chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. Just stop there. How do you show faith without works? You're not allowed to do anything, okay, but you have to show faith. You can't really do that, right? That's, that's James's argument. If there is faith... It has to lead to some sort of outworking. There has to be something. If you say, I believe that I can, I don't know, walk. I mean, surely you're going to walk. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, there has to be an outworking of what you believe. So he says, they show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Essentially, faith in and of itself, without any deed, he says the devils also do that. So that is a, a dead faith. Verse 20, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And so that's why I say that what you believe determines the way you live. And it points a lot to what is important to you in your life. Because if you truly believe something, then it has to have an outworking in the way you treat people, in the way you work, in the way you just conduct your life every day. It doesn't help you say something, but then there's no works to back it up. Then the question can be asked, do you truly believe that? So how does Satan tempt you to shake your faith? So he, we know he goes for the faith. How does he do that? I thought of three examples, and the first one is he creates other religions that appeal more to your flesh and not your faith. Satan creates other religions. In, in Thessalonica, we've discussed this before, it was a port city. There were, it was an intellectual hub in that time. So you had philosophers, you had different religions, you had all these people coming together there and teaching their various doctrines, their various lessons. And so he uh, brings other religions in opposition to Christianity, but those other religions appeal to your flesh. Now, why do I say that? Not necessarily in the sense that live sinfully. It appeals to your flesh in the, in the sense that it um, makes you think that if you do this or if you do that, then you will be right with God. Because we, it, it doesn't sit well with us that I do nothing to justify myself. I can't do anything to make my standing before God better out of myself like your flesh wants to think that what i am doing makes me right with god do you understand and so it appeals to your flesh it it, it opposes the message if of the gospel because everything in life works on this principle to an extent if you do then you get that's sort of how life works and so that is what our flesh thinks. That is how we work. So the gospel goes in opposition to that. So other religions that appeal more 
um, to our flesh. That's the first thing Satan does. The other thing he does to shake off faith is incorrect theology due to a lack of knowledge. Essentially, the Bible is not that important. That's the second thing Satan will do. He'll make you think that Scripture and knowing what God says about certain things is not really that important. He, and that will result you to think things like, how could I have acted like that if I am saved? How could I have done this thing if I am saved? Do you see, that's, it's a distorted view of, of correct theology and understanding that, yes, you are still sinful in your flesh. You understand? There's still a sinfulness in you. You're still in a sinful world. You still make mistakes. But if you don't understand the Bible, what the Bible teaches about salvation, you can fall prey to this trap. Also, Satan may make you say, look at the injustice in this world. How can there be a good God? Right? He comes and he, he, he brings false theology, false ideas about God and about Scripture and about who God is and how He handles and how He treats people. If you don't understand how the Bible addresses these things, you will be shaken in your faith. And that is what Satan uses to shake your faith. Have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is something else that, that Satan uses to shake our faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd say Satan complicates or distorts the gospel. Satan complicates or distorts the gospel, the method of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. It says, For I am jealous of you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Do you see how the tempter, the serpent, uses or he dis- dis- distorts, he corrupts the simplicity that there is in the gospel. And so he says you are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says that you are saved by adding this, by being baptized or by going to this church or going through catechism or by whatever things you want to attach to it. And he distorts, he corrupts the simplicity that there is in the gospel. And because if you think your foundation had anything to do with you, you have room to think that that you, you can lose it because it had something to do with you. And so you don't want to go down that route. Because as soon as you go down that route, there is this idea and that weakens your faith to say that I can somehow lose my salvation because I had something to do with my salvation. And so that is a dangerous um, tool that Satan can use to, um, to um, weaken your faith. So let's be aware of that Satan attacks and how we attacks, so we can prepare to stand against these onslaughts that come against our faith. Now at the end of verse, oh, let's get back to our text, at the end of verse 5, he says, lest by some means, 1 Thessalonians 5, Oh, 3 verse 5. Um, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Now, we know that vain means empty, worthless, of no value. That's, that's the idea that's connected to vain, right? Empty, worthless, 
no substance, no importance. Now, if the tempter tempted them, why would Paul have thought that his labor was in vain? So these people hear the gospel, they get saved, and now Paul is concerned for their faith because he's saying it is all in vain, potentially all in vain. Why would he say that? Well, first we need to establish that Paul is not saying that these people can lose their salvation. Okay? So he's not saying, I labored, they got saved, and now they get lost again because the tempter tempted them. Okay? So we need to establish that. Paul's not saying, I'm concerned that they lost their salvation. He's also not saying that preaching the gospel to them was in vain. It was empty. It was worthless. He's not saying that preaching the gospel is in vain. We know he told Timothy to preach in season and out of season. Preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. So we know that Paul doesn't think that preaching the gospel in and of itself is in vain. So why then does he call his labor potentially vain? Because Paul's desire for believers is not just for them to get saved. That's not his desire for believers, not just for them to get saved. He wanted them to know God, to love God, to bear fruit, to become more like their Savior, to make a difference in the souls of others, essentially to become true disciples. That is what Paul's desire was for these people. That's why if it, would, it didn't result in that, he says he almost counts his labor as vain. Like what has it brought forth in the kingdom of God? It, doesn't, it didn't change them. Did you understand what, why he says that? Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. So what would have been vain labor? What would have been vain labor? Galatians chapter 4. Verse 9. It says, But now, after that you have known God, or rather, are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. You see what he's concerned about? He's concerned that they are going to return to dead works, the things they got saved from. Not that they're not saved, but that they're going to return to the things, the very sin, the very thing that they were in bondage to, that they were going to return to that. That would qualify as vain labor because their life didn't change after salvation. Let's have a look at another one. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. What would have also been vain labor? Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What is he referring to in the beginning of the verse? He says there, holding forth the word of life, the neglect of the word, the word that effectually works in you to make you more like Christ and to help you bring forth fruit. Neglect of that. If they neglected God's word and didn't grow in the knowledge of God's word, that would have been vain labor. So Paul's concern for these people's growth, these people's love for God, these people's understanding of who God is and truth 
And so Paul's concerned about their sanctification, not just their salvation. They got saved but made no difference for Christ. They got saved but soon after lost fellowship with their Savior. There's no life of repentance. There's no walking in the light. That would be a worthless, empty, and vain Christian life. That would bring no glory to God. That would lead no soul to the Savior. That is why it is vain. So let's all strive not to be the Christian that makes someone else feel like their time and effort, their labor, was in vain. It was spent in vain. You know, Pastor Mike has put in a lot of effort over the years for us, for this church. Let's not make him feel like his labor has been in vain. Back to our text, First Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 6. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. says, But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, and we also to see you. Can you imagine better news for Paul? He hadn't heard from these people in months. He was there for three weeks and he was greatly encouraged by their salvation, how they turned to serve the living God from idols and how they went on and just shared the message. Do you imagine if he heard back from Timothy and these, the church had essentially died? He heard back from Timothy and the people weren't living for God anymore or they turned off to some false gospel or anything like that. So to hear this news, but when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought good tidings of your faith, and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, and we also to see you. That was good news. That was good news for, for Paul when he heard this. Um, because Paul's concerns were that these people would have lost faith. He knew that Satan would have accused him of a vain ministry. He looked at that in chapter 2, how essentially Paul was accused of the content of his message. And all the, the, just the, the, every, everything surrounding his message, he was accused of that. He was also accused of, um, if you truly love these people, why aren't you coming back to them? And so Paul was, he knew that these are the things that were going to be flung at them, and he was concerned that they may lose faith because of that. Or that Satan might tell them that he didn't care for them. Or Satan would have tempted them to, through many, any of his many devices. So Paul had a concern for these people. But then to get the news that they have good remembrance and that they have longed to see him. What a relief. And what an opportunity, I think, for Paul at that moment to just thank God, just to praise God that God had kept these people faithful, and that through Paul's prayers that these people stayed strong. So you can actually see his thanksgiving prayer in verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 3, it says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. You see how immediately he hears the good news and he just praises God, just thanks God for keeping these people steadfast in their faith. So I just want to have a quick look at the things that Timothy brings back. So Timothy went there, he brings back a few items of good news. And what does Timothy consider 
important to mention? What does Timothy consider important, important to bring back about these, the character of these Christians? The first thing we read there, um, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought good tidings, firstly of your faith. And then he mentions charity. And then he says have, um, that you have good remembrance of us always. And then he also says, desiring greatly to see us and we also to see you. So he mentions a few things. First thing, the remembrance of your brothers and sisters. The remembrance of your brothers and sisters. I think the last three lessons had some item of this in it. Out of sight, but not out of mind, right? And so, do you have remembrance of your brothers and sisters? Not everyone knows everyone, and not everyone can get to everyone. But you know who is not at church last, was not at church last week. You know who is not at church today. And you may know someone else that I don't know. And so we are together supposed to encourage and supposed to reach out to each other, to remember our brothers and sisters, to care about our brothers and sisters. Okay, so that's something that we really need to take seriously, take it up and follow up. The next thing that Paul mentions, or that Timothy mentions to Paul, is the desire, essentially, for fellowship. It says there in verse 6, desiring greatly to see us, and we also to see you. There's a desire for fellowship with the church, with church family, other Christians. We know the verse that says, iron sharpeneth iron, right? So I was thinking about this. What does one piece of iron do to another piece of iron? Now, obviously, it says sharpeneth, but it changes your shape, right? It changes your shape. And so the thing that I see there is there's an exhortation and an admonition. Spending time with other believers and seeing what they're doing for God and what God's doing in their life and um, maybe you're struggling with something and they can help you with that. That's, that's exhortation. That's admonition. You just see how it shapes you. It, it makes you into a different shape, hopefully more like Christ. That's fellowship. The other thing is it sharpens and it hardens you. If you beat a piece of iron, it gets harder generally before it breaks. So, sharpens and it hardens. That is the strengthening. That is the equipping. That's the encouraging part of fellowship. So not only is it shaping you, and sometimes that's the more difficult and not so nice, but it's also encouraging you and you can encourage them. So that is the sharpening and the hardening. So iron sharpeneth iron. Fellowship is vital. It's very important for believers to spend time in fellowship. And then lastly, what I left... The first thing that Timothy actually mentions here is faith and charity. But I left it to last because I actually wanted to show you something. Have a look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. When I read this and I saw there's a connection between faith and love, I couldn't understand it. So I hope this... If you understand it, then this is a waste of time for you. But otherwise, for you who don't, who don't see the connection, here's the connection. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, For in, Christ, in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So we can't ignore the connection between 
faith in love. Faith which works by love. Now, we know that this love, the one that leads into faith, it is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? In Romans 8, it speaks about not height, not not depth, not anything. Principalities, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So there's, there's the love which is the source of faith. If you don't know how much Christ loves you, if you don't know how much God loves you, then it's very difficult to stand in faith in Him and in His salvation for you. You need to know that God loves you so much and that He cares so deeply for you that He would send His Son. That for Him to be brutally murdered, for Him to take His glory and become a man, you see, there's, there's a love and nothing can separate you from that love. There's no love like that on this earth. We can't even start to comprehend it. This is an amazing love. And so that love, if you know that, then it, you, you can't, it's, I want to say, say, you can't be shaken ultimately in your faith because of the depth of the love of the person that your faith is placed in. And so love leads to faith. And then we love because he first loved us. And so from that point of faith where you are established, where you know that you're, you're not shaken, where you have complete freedom to serve Christ because you're not concerned about, am I saved? You're not concerned about, does Jesus care? If you're in that state, you can freely, in liberty, serve Christ. And so that love that was shown to you has a passage. And just something else. The verses I mentioned, John 3.16, Romans 8, all these verses that speak about the love towards us from God, that is truth. We started with truth. That is the truth of Scripture. And you see how if you don't know the truth of Scripture, you can't understand that love. If you don't understand that love, your faith will shake. You see the connection? Truth, love, and faith. Let's finish off with the last two verses. It will be brief. Verse 7 and verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7 says, Therefore, brethren, brethren, we were comforted over you all uh, in all our affliction and distress by your faith. We as believers, we need to work as a team. How can we go through trials, or this going through trials, help us give hope to other believers? How does this work? In Romans 5, I'm sure you're familiar with what Romans 5 says. In the beginning there it says that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. All right, hope. So how does this flow work from tribulation to patience, from patience to experience, and from experience to hope. The things that we go through with God strengthens our faith to know He will bring us through this trial we are facing. Experience upon experience. God leading us through something. Next time we face something, we have stronger faith. We know that through this tribulation, I learned patience. And through, I have now patience to trust in God. And that gave me experience. And this experience is now giving me hope for the new trial that I am facing. So that is the one aspect. We have an example to look back on in our next trial. That's comforting. That 
gives hope. And that's why Paul mentions here that you comforted, in verse 7, you comforted us through, through that affliction, in our affliction. So there's comfort in that. But what if your trial that you are currently facing is too big or too different to your, any previous experiences? What if it's just, it just seems too big and too difficult? Well, that's where other believers come in. Paul specifically says that we were comforted over in all our affliction and distress by your faith. You see, it's not, a, it's not just that I have gone through this, God has helped me, I can go through this again, God will help me again. There is a they aspect. There's a communal aspect. There's a, what, went, what that person went through was an encouragement to me. And because he, God helped him go through it, I know God can help me go through it. You understand? There's a communal aspect. So other believers who have gone through can sympathize. And then also other believers who are strong currently in the faith can pray and encourage those who are weak. It, there has to be community. God made it that way. It works beautifully that way when there is prayer and encouragement through other believers. That's why Paul said in, in um, Romans 15 verse 1, he says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. In Hebrews 12 verse 2, it says, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down. Now, Think about the body of Christ, okay? That's what we are. We all are different members of this body. We all have a different function that we need to fulfill. It says here, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down. Some of us might be the hands. And the others need to lift it up. And the feeble knees. And make straight the paths for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed. You see, if you do not help that person in their trial, if you don't reach out to that person, you are strong in the faith in that moment. That person might fall prey to the lie of Satan. That person may be tempted and essentially be that vain Christian because we had an opportunity to reach out, but we didn't. And so we that are strong in the faith, we need to reach out, we need to help those, we need to lift those, those hands and those feeble knees. So let's work together like that. And in that way, then we can fulfill and say, like Paul said in verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. We want to be able to say that of each other. Now, verse 8, we'll finish off there. says, now, For now we live if ye stand fast, in the Lord. For now we live if ye stand fast. Once again, that same picture. Those who are standing fast help those who are in the affliction. Paul in this case what he was speaking about. We can live because of that. Essentially this verse is saying this, now we live. Paul is saying now this is the life. This is the life. Seeing people you helped lead to Christ serve him steadfastly. Seeing people you help lead to Christ live, serve Him steadfastly. What a comfort and joy to us in our time of trial. It makes it all worth it and not in vain at all. When we started with, was our labor in vain? And now he finishes off, this is the life. Seeing people serve Christ steadfastly. And what a comfort 
and a joy it is to have those people now be a joy in your trial. And that makes it all worth it, and that's not vain or in vain at all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message, Lord. Thank you for the treasure, truly, that your word is. Thank you, Lord, that we, I want to say, have the key to this treasure. And we can open it and just see the beauty of it. The, the maps to life, the, the promises, the, just all that you have given us in your word. Thank you for revealing it to us. Thank you, Lord, that we are saved through, through the truth that's contained in it. Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful students of it, that we would grow in it, be able to be a better witness for you through it. And Lord, that you will be ultimately glorified in our lives through the truth of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.